is NSA Nation, and welcome to your 2012 October edition of Voices of Experience. I'm Theo Andros, and I'll be your host for another exciting edition of VOE. We have a compelling and diversified lineup for you this month as we take a look at the issues that matter most to our NSA members. We'll touch on a variety of topics, and in everything we do, the focus will be on you, the working professional speaker, in hopes that we can deliver you something of relevance and value. The challenge is that there are many of you out there, many with different business models and more importantly, different goals. So our job is to mix it up a bit, present a variety of viewpoints and a variety of topics, perhaps even go after a few sacred cows. Your job is to find what works for you. Our first guest has done just that. Certified speaking professional Mike Robbins has built a tremendously successful speaking business and in this interview he shares how he did it. Before becoming a speaker, Mike was a baseball player. He was drafted by the New York Yankees out of high school, but chose instead to go to college, where he played for Stanford and pitched in the College World Series. He was then drafted by the Kansas City Royals organization, but injured his pitching arm before making it to the big leagues. Baseball's loss has been our game. He's a big league speaker now, one of the best at what he does. He has built a thriving career as a speaker with little to no staff and with a topic I thought would never sell. Join me now as Mike Robbins tells us how he did it. When Mike Robbins started in this business, he had a topic that I was convinced would never work. I advised him against it. I said, you got to pick a better topic. It's too soft. It's never going to never gonna get any traction. No one's ever going to buy that. And he spent the last decade proving me wrong. <laughs> Mike Robbins, welcome to VOE. Tell us about your topic and how you did what you've done. Well, you know, when I first started in the speaking business back in 2001, Theo, you and I met literally moments after I walked in the door at my first NSA convention. And, you know, everybody's asking me, what do you speak about? What do you speak about? What do you speak about? And at the time, I literally didn't know. But, you know, my story, having played professional baseball, injured my arm in the minor leagues, trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life, where it coming, kept coming back to was my biggest insight was, oh, I wish I would have appreciated it while I was doing it. And also, as I looked at my experience on sports teams, but also the few years I worked in the dot-com world, I thought, you know, people don't seem to feel appreciated or valued. So that seemed to be where I thought, hey, I think people need to know this. Hey, I think this is important. And as I told people about it, you included, everyone was like, what is that? No one will pay for that. That's too soft. So I kept going back thinking, okay, I got to find a better topic, a harder topic, one that people will buy and you know pay for. And I just kept coming back to, that's what I feel like, at least at that moment in my life, I had to teach and I had to share. So I kept talking about it. And you know, here we are, 12 years later almost, I guess 11 and a half years later, and I'm still talking about it a lot. The power of appreciation is one of the primary focuses of the work that I do. And what's really interesting about it is that you did not do market research. You didn't go out there and say, okay, what's hot, what's selling? You looked at yourself and your life and what was important to you, and you said, what, what am I most excited about? What do I feel most compelled to share? And over these 12 years, the marketplace has finally caught up with you. Well, the irony is that what's happened is the world of positive psychology has exploded in the last 10 years. I mean, the research has been there for a while, but a lot of strength-based leadership, a lot of what the Gallup organization has done, a lot of what somebody like Marcus Buckingham has done to really create not only just a niche, but a whole philosophy of leadership, of building teams around people's strengths and around employee engagement was an idea. I mean, that's really the main topic within the corporate structure that you would put me under, employee engagement. Now, what does that mean? It just means people like their jobs, like their boss, want to work there. Nobody was talking about that 10, 12 years ago. That wasn't what I started to speak about. I was just talking about appreciation. Now, in some ways, the marketplace is caught up and people say, oh, you have a really hot topic or that's really sexy or that's really cool. And it's like, 
it's just what I've always thought was important, among other things. But one of the primary focuses is me telling my own personal story and then seeing how it resonates. And now, you know, 11 plus years later, I have lots of stories and examples of how relevant and valuable it is from what I've seen with my own clients. So I don't even have to go outside and find other data and research. I just have to talk about what I see from my own clients all the time, and those are the case studies. So it's a very convenient baseball analogy, but you truly, you built it and they came. (laughs) (laughs) I I guess you could say that. I mean, in some ways, there's a little bit of, if I'm being really honest, you know, some vindication around, I see some of the people around here at NSA who are like, (laughs) you can't do that, or how are you, you know, and I look at my business and it's been, you know, a key part of it. I guess uh, No, of course you should be vindicated. I was was dead wrong. You stay true to what you believe and you went out there and created a, an incredible business with marquee clients a business that has continued to grow every year that you've been doing it it's really just a phenomenal phenomenal story now along the way you've written a couple books you've done a tremendous amount of media you've done over 500 radio interviews over 30 television interviews share with us what you've learned through that process well my first book focus on the good stuff came out in 2007 and up to that point I had done very little media I started speaking in 2001 Um, I figured, you know, you need a book, you need something to put you in the media. So what I did was I hired a PR firm like a lot of people do in buying, in writing my first book, in leading up to that, and then we started pitching the media. And I learned a couple things. The first thing that I learned, and a lot of people learned, especially around books and media, was that I spent a lot of money on PR firms that in hindsight I probably didn't need to spend. But I was scared. I didn't know how to write a pitch. I didn't know who to pitch. I didn't know any of that. So I learned a lot about how to get booked on media. And then starting to do those interviews, I learned a lot more about myself and about my topic and about what's important in doing an audio interview like we're doing right now. What's important in doing a television interview? And in the process, I mean, there's a lot of interviews I look back and go, why did I spend my time doing that? Like who even listened to that? Was that even valuable or relevant? But I think the process of doing them made me much better and much more comfortable and confident. And I don't know that I was conscious of this at the time, but my rationalization behind doing it. Sure, I wanted to promote books and sell books and have people hear me and see me and all that, but I think a lot of it was who would I become in the process, but also what would it provide for me from a skill set standpoint that I could use to grow my business and to connect with more people, and it's absolutely done that. I mean, the measurements for a successful PR campaign often is how many books did I sell, how many bookings came out of it, what new business did I get, how many additional media appearances, and it seems like actually the most important measure or a important measure that is not frequently measured is what do you become in the process? Yeah. And through that experience, the the level of self-awareness and the knowledge of your topic and the confidence and how to talk about it and what mattered to people, you grew in a way that you couldn't grow unless you did the work. Absolutely. You know, one of the things, Theo, for me in speaking, if I just look at my, you know, now almost 12 years in the speaking business, on average over the last 12 years, I've spoken, give or take, about 100 times. You know, maybe more, maybe less. But Per year. Per year. And that's, you know, everything from early, the early days, a lot of rotary clubs and a lot of high school gyms to, you know, now with some of my great clients near where I live in Silicon Valley at Google or at Twitter or at Adobe. I mean, so they run the gamut of the client and the type of engagement. But I speak a lot. It's the thing I love to do more than anything. And people will often come up to me, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to your us on VOE have this experience. They run up to you, oh, you're so great, or how'd you get so good? Well, whenever I'm coaching people or they're asking me for advice on speaking, I say, look, I mean, in some ways, I think I had some natural talent and ability to begin with, but I speak a lot. Like, I do it all the time. And so for me, when I'm up in front of a group, whether there's five people or 50 people or 500 people or 1,500 people, you know, not that I don't ever get nervous because I still do. I'm pretty comfortable because I do it a lot. It's the same thing on radio. It's the same thing. Like right now, even having this conversation with you, I feel much more relaxed 
than I would have five years ago because I hadn't done a lot of interviews or had conversations. I would overthink it. And what do I need to say? And I have to have a sound bite. And it's the same thing I do when I speak. I speak pretty extemporaneously. I do interviews pretty extemporaneously. But the more you do anything, like we all know, the better you get at it. So for me, a lot of the media stuff, now it has led to some business and it has sold some books, but it's really helped me in the process. I'm just more comfortable and relaxed doing them. See, what I think is fascinating is that your second book was called Be Yourself, Everyone Else Has Already Taken, which really could have been written for our association. You're exposed to great speakers. You're seeing what other speakers are doing. And you think, I should do that or I should be that. And what you've done probably better than anybody is from the beginning, you stayed true to who you are. So what advice would you give to speakers on how to be themselves rather than trying to be somebody else? Well, I think it's a great question. And I, the first thing I would say, and this is true in life, but it's definitely true in the speaking business, it's hard. It's, I mean, as simple as it sounds, it's hard to be ourselves because, look, I come to every NSA convention I come to, I learn things. Every chapter meeting even I go to, I learn things, but I also go into my own head and go, oh, I should do that. I should do this. Oh, he's better than me. Oh, she's better than me. I mean, I go in my own personal journey, which I think all of us do. And I think coming back to a place of what works for me, what's true for me, what resonates with me, I think is the question we're always asking ourselves in life and in this business in particular. And because a lot of us at NSA and in the speaking business in general have lots of opinions, and I listen to opinions of people I trust like you, like many of my other friends and mentors here in our association, and it's hard sometimes to come back to what, what's real for me? So I just think the first thing to acknowledge is it's difficult to be ourselves and be true to ourselves because we get lots of advice and we see lots of other people doing it differently. The second thing, though, I think it's really important to look at both what feels good and what works. You know, like what feel literally, it's like I, early on, one of the things that I did, because I'm not a big reader, researcher, preparer, that's just not, I was never that way, even in school, is that I went out and started speaking. And again, pretty extemporaneously. And then I would literally, and I think you even gave me some of this advice early on, I would write down, I would take notes after I would speak. What felt good? What resonated? Not just what did they laugh at, but what felt good coming out of my mouth? What seemed to work for me? And then I did a lot of that in those first few years. And now as I look at my business, I don't do it in the same way content-wise, but I look back at my business and I figure out, over the course of a year, what events and engagements and clients and things felt most fun and engaging to me personally? And then in a very business practical way, where did that business come from? How did I get it? And for me, even with two books, even with media interviews, even with tweeting and Facebooking and doing all the different things, my business fundamentally comes from the relationships that I have and from spinoffs from in the room, almost all of my business. And I work with a lot of companies who bring me back multiple times to work with multiple groups within the organization. So it's not an event-based business as much as it's a relationship-based business for me. And, you know, I don't know that I could have planned all of that. It just keeps going, well, what works for me, what feels good, and what continues to resonate with me. And I think that each and every one of us, whether we're just starting or we've been in the business for, you know, 30 years, we got to keep asking ourselves those questions. Thank you, Mike. So true. I, I think as speakers, it's very important to ask ourselves those questions. And I think it's also important to ask it of our audiences and our clients. It can be very challenging to find your own voice in this business, especially when that voice is not initially embraced by the marketplace. I remember the lean years from Mike, watching him struggle as he fought to establish himself as a speaker. Today, he has a robust and vibrant business. The results he produces with and for his clients have enabled him to create an almost self-perpetuating business. Perhaps that's something you too can do. Our next guest is an expert at teaching individuals and organizations how to do just that. 
Listen now as Bill Whitley explains to us how to create your own client attraction stories. Uh, Bill, what is the client attraction story? Well, a client attraction story is simply a story about a client that had a challenge where your insight or advice helped them avoid difficulty or achieve a goal, and they got great results. And the, the beautiful thing about a client attraction story is that if you can share that simple example, at the end of the story, you know, you've demonstrated how you've helped somebody. At the end of the story, all you got to do is say, and so the only reason I tell you that story is that's what I do. And I'd be happy to do the same thing for you. So can you give an example of how a speaker might use that story? Sure. Five years ago, I wrote a book called Art of the Rainmaker, and it teaches people how to develop their client attraction story. And a guy from State Farm read my book. His name was Jim Barr. And he invited me to speak to 250 State Farm agents in Los Angeles. And a month before the seminar, he called me and said this really interesting thing. He said, you know, Bill, a typical State Farm agent writes 15 auto policies a month. And he said, our very best agents write 70 auto policies a month. And he said, the reason we're bringing you out here is to help the typical agent increase production. You know, most of them will never reach 70 and we don't care. But if you could help the typical guy go from 15 to 20, it'd be a big victory. And I said, well, you know, if that's the case, could I interview your top 10 agents. Can I find out how they do what they do? And he said, sure. And he teed up 10 interviews. So I called every single agent on the phone. And at the end of the interviews, I was just blown away with what I learned. And I was so excited, I called back and said, Jim, I want to change my seminar. I want to call it Eight Secrets of the Top Performing Agents. And that, that seminar has been a big hit. And I've now been booked hundreds of times by State Farm and other insurance companies. And so that story is my client attraction story. And so when people want to know what I do, that's how I explain what I do. You know, that's what I help my clients do, is to develop their client attraction story. And how do you help them do that? Well, there's five key parts of a well-told client attraction story. And so I simply say, could you give me an example of a client that had a problem where your insider advice helped them avoid difficulty and they got great results? And they'll start telling me about a situation and and part one of the story is background you know introduces to the hero of the story and so they'll usually dive in and say something like you know one of my clients and then they'll dive off and start talking about their solution or the problem I said whoa 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 who was the client were they old or young you know what business were they in you know just give me enough it doesn't have to be long but just enough that I understand the context of the story so I'll, I'll take a few notes about who the client was the second part of the story is called journey. You know, what was the client's goal? What was it they were trying to achieve? Third part of the story is obstacle. You know, something was getting in the client's way. No matter how hard they tried, something was screwing them up. Fourth is solution. You know, with your help, the client overcame that obstacle. And I teach people to really kind of bask in solution. If you're going to take your time in any one part of the story, part four is, is where you want to ask. And so in my story, I told you exactly how I did the research and how I developed the the seminar. And then uh, step five is results. You know, thanks to the solution you helped the client implement, life for the client changed. So I interview my client and I take notes until I've kind of established each of those areas. And then I pull out a little digital recorder and I say, you know, if you don't mind, I'd like to share with you how I'd tell your story if I were you. And I literally tell their story as if I were them, and I make a recording of it. And in most cases, the client will go, wow, that sounded really good. (laughs) Would you send me a copy of that story? 
And so, so that's how I help people develop their client attraction story. The, the client attraction story you use as your example is meaningful for a speaker audience because it led to more bookings for you as State Forum. But, the, but if you are using that story to attract an opportunity for you to speak to another organization, wouldn't the end of that story be the results that State Farm produced? Yes. What did sharing those secrets do for the other agents? That's a really great, great question. And so I can only answer your question anecdotally. I can't tell you that across the board it's had a certain impact. What I can tell you is if an agent implements the ideas in my seminar, and that's a big if, and it's very humbling to see what percent of the people actually implement what you teach. But I can tell you, if an agent implements the ideas, I've had numerous emails, 20 and 30 emails from people who increased home and auto production by 40% in 30 days. So I know that the seminar has an immediate impact, and I know it can be a significant impact, 30 to 40%. I've had people walk out of the seminar and email me and say, you won't believe I I did exactly what you said and and made this sale and developed this deeper relationship with the client, you know, the day after the seminar. Uh, A a lot of people pat me on the back and say, wow, that was was the best seminar I do. That was great. And they don't even buy a book. They don't do anything. And so I think the seminar has no impact for them. It has the potential to have a 30 to 40% impact within 30 days. Do you speak to other organizations besides State Farm? Oh, yeah. So when you're talking to them about what you can do, what client attraction story do you use? I have a couple different stories I use. I would simply share an example of how I helped a client develop their client attraction story. I recently spoke to a large accounting firm. I said, so tell me what you do. And he said, well, you know, here at, at this accounting firm, we, you know, we're, we're good accountants, but, but we also think of ourselves as business advisors. And if we do our job well, you, the benefit you get from us is going to be worth many, many times more than our fee. You know, don't worry about the fee we charge you. And I said, well, could you give me an example? And he said, yeah. He said, you know, Bill, he said, one of our clients is a manufacturer, pretty good-sized manufacturer based in South Carolina. And in 2008, they had a lot of cash sitting on their books, and the real estate market collapsed. And these guys looked around and wanted to buy up some of this very inexpensive real estate. And the state of South Carolina wanted to charge them a $600,000 franchise tax. And they had a big four accounting firm. And the big four accounting firms said, pay the tax. And they were really frustrated. And so their attorney contacted us and said, hey, is there any way you guys can help us reduce this tax? And so we took a look at their retained earnings. We documented where the earnings came from. These guys operated in 37 different states. And we documented the fact that this was really retained earnings, not paid in capital. And after we did our analysis, we were able to reduce that tax from $600,000 to $20,000. And the only reason I tell you that this, this firm is thrilled They've now hired us for all of their tax work and all of their audit work. And then I said to the accountant, and all you have to do at the end of that story and say, the reason I'm sharing that story with you is that's what we do. You know, we're, we're accountants, but, but really you should think of us as a business advisor. And if we do our job well, the benefits you're going to get are, gonna, are far going to outweigh our fees. And I'd be happy to do that for you. So that's a great example of how an accountant can position themselves. And there's really three steps to it. I think of positioning, you know, we're, we're accountants, we're good accountants, but we think of ourselves as business advisors, and our, the value of our advice will far outweigh our fee. 
and then they proved it. You know, he, you know, they developed, we developed a client attraction story that proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that that accounting firm could indeed, their advice would far outweigh the, the cost of their fee. And then the final stage is just dismount. Just ask the question. You know, so that's what I do. And, and would you like me to do the same thing for you? So take us through your version of that for a prospective client of yours or how a speaker might take their prospect through that story. I think uh, as a speaker, you want to simply talk about I had a client that had a, a very interesting challenge and they hired me. And so I, I did whatever I do. You know, uh, in, in my case, I'm more of a research-based speaker. I want to do research. I want to talk to their top producers. And specifically, I want to know what the top producers say. How does a top producer position himself? What's the example? They, what's the proof they give that they can indeed do it? And then how do they dismount from that? And, and how do they do discovery? You know, how do, they, how do they do their needs analysis? So I'm kind of a words guy. I want to know what are the words these top people use. And, and so I'm going to interview enough that I can look for commonality and synthesize what those top people are doing. Then I'm going to stand up and say, let me share with you the questions your top people ask and the stories your top people share and the, the positioning comments and the discovery conversations. So in every case, I think all the speaker has to do is simply identify a client that had a challenge where they helped. And I think that's a key thing. You've got to go out and help first. But, and, and so I tell people when you're new in the speaking business, don't worry about you know, the, the client so much, we don't worry about getting paid so much. What you're really looking for is one example, one great example that you can indeed do what you said you could do. And just sort of run that example up the flagpole as many times as you can. Thank you, Bill. You make it seem so simple. The most profound ideas often are. Speaking of profound, our next guest is the always thought-provoking and often profound CSP NSA board member, Scott Halford, here to talk to us about how he creates revenue beyond the speech. My goal in in 2000, when I got together with my business partner, was to increase the amount of revenues that came in from non-speaking related activities. So things that were, you know, books and uh, DVDs and coaching and things that didn't require my body to be in a room speaking to a group of people. And we actually have done really well with that. We actually have increased the business where the speaking in that it's about 60 40 kind of thing is where it's at right now and what's happened is because that to the business is that the speaking has actually taken off again and interestingly enough um i i can't really tell you exactly why and isn't that always the holy grail to be able to say here's the formula of why everything is happening perfectly but we don't know other than People are really interested in the topic. They want to consume it a lot more. And what I think is that corporations have become extraordinarily, and that's where I work, and corporations are extraordinarily jaded to the go more, be more, do more, organize more. And I'm not, I'm not dissing all of my buddies out there who talk <laughs> <Really>? about that. <laughs> so maybe edit that out. Um, no, I, I think that, that – Well, your topics, the topics kind of come of age. It's matured. You were a little bit ahead of the curve when you first – Launched. Well, it's, you know, the, the, the thing that people want is this, is that they, they want to hear information that's backed up by 
reality, by science, by research, by whatever means that you have that proves that it's measurable and it's real, that it's not all, all a pretty story. It's not all about the fact that, hey, look at me, I did it, you can do it too, because that's not actually true. I don't believe that that's true. And I, I, I'm not a cynic. I, I encourage people not to ever be cynical, which in my mind is a person who says it can't happen. I encourage people to be skeptical, to ask the question, how can it happen? How does that happen? And to ask the questions about how, how is it that we really get to this? Has anybody, it's a great idea, has anybody ever achieved it? When I got into the field of neuroscience, I really began to look at the, the science behind achievement, behind when people get into bad moods, good moods, when people burn out. Why is it that in the afternoon we're all a little bit numb? Uh, why is it in the morning that we actually see people, the, the, the parole system, for instance, when we look at uh, parole decisions made, that when you look at somebody who's in a parole hearing in the morning, a parole board will almost always, more often, say yes to a parole than they will in the afternoon. And it, we'd look at decision fatigue happening. I mean, it's real stuff so that we're... So if you have a parole hearing, speakers, make sure you have them in uh, the morning. You know, if you're going to prison for what you're doing in speaking, <laughs> you want to make sure you listen to this very carefully. <laughs> so decision-making in the morning is, is less burdened by, by fatigue, by okay. decision fatigue. And so those are real things that if you're an executive and you're going along and you're wondering why is it that you're sitting in a meeting and you're just like, oh, geez, let's just get this done. And then the next morning your team revisits it or in a week or in a month and you discover you've made a bad decision, you can trace it back to several of these kinds of things. I think more and more people are eating up the real science and reality behind things. And I think that I definitely have designed programs to, to provide that. And then more and more of my business is, is giving people more of that kind of information. That's what people can chew into because they look at it and they go, but that's happening to me. That's real. Scott, your goal when you brought in your business partner was to increase the revenue that was not dependent upon you standing in front of a room. How did you do that? So we looked at assessments. When we do assessment kinds of you know, measuring people and we use assessments that we don't develop, we're actually looking at developing an assessment, which is very costly to develop. But once you get it in like a Myers-Briggs or a, a Berkman or you know, there's uh, what is trimetrics, there's all kinds of assessments out there. Well, if you happen to be the person who's going to foot the bill to make it a valid and reliable assessment, probably hundred grand to take it through all the, the kind of validity testing that you would do, big barrier to entry. If you actually take it to that level and it's used worldwide in organizations, you can make millions of dollars off of just that assessment. Uh, so we're looking at, at doing that, and not so much for the, the, the money of it. We know that that will probably follow, but more, more because there are things we want to assess that aren't being assessed out there. So assessments, there are books, there are workbooks, there are a variety of different ways that, you know, licensing, a variety so you, of different ways. So you licensed your content? Yes, we have. And so when you license it to people, you can license it to individuals, you can license it to organizations so that you're not selling them, selling them your stuff, you're letting them rent it, but you're allowing them to rent it and, and not have to, to wonder whether they're, they're gonna be you know, taken to court over copyright. And so they can copy your information, they can copy your uh, material and use it over and over and over again. So who te when you license your material, who's teaching your material? Well, um, so corporate trainers would use the material. And who trains them to teach your material? We do. Okay. So there's train the trainer. 
which is also another revenue stream. So we go in, we train them, they pay a fee to be trained on, on using the information, and then they have access to all of the platforms that actually support it. So for instance, like an emotional intelligence stream that we have, we have, there's, there's a book, there's an instrument, not our instrument, but we, we charge for that. We charge for the coaching of that. So you take the instrument, you need it debriefed, you need to know what the results mean. We have a coach who will take you through that. Then you go to an online platform that teaches you the competencies that you scored low in, teaches you about those. And then you have a coach that actually coaches you on those competencies down the road. So there's lots and lots of different ways to come at it. Then there's, there, there's an email follow-up that comes into your email once a week that says, hey, you know, Theo, you're low in assertiveness. So this week, this is what you're going to work on in assertiveness. And it gives you that for, you know, for, for at least 30 days where you're working on that. And so there are a huge number of, of ways that people like to consume information, and they'll pay for it if, if it if it feels like there is some movement in their ability and skill. So that's what we do. And we license, uh, my, you know, my great, my, my goal and hope is to create things for other practitioners, other speakers who, who they, they want to dabble in emotional intelligence or neuroscience, but they don't want to spend maybe the time that I've spent in it, which is quite a lot. They, they want to be able to do that, but they don't want to take and create the kind of material that we've created. They can license it. And so it's an abundant world out there. That's the thing is that, you know, I've completely gone from the idea of, oh, my gosh, protect my PowerPoint, protect my handouts. I don't care if it gets copied out there, quite frankly. People are going to do it. They're going to do it anyway, and they're not going to ask for my permission. There, there are enough people out there who will do the right thing and, and go through the licensing process and then work with us and get the support that we can offer them in the ongoing research that I continue to do. That, that requires some uptime, but on the backside, there's, there's not a lot of me involved in that. You have an assessment tool. How do you measure the effectiveness of the programs you're teaching? Do you have a measurement piece that comes in after you've done the work? Yeah, so we do, we do 30, 60, 90 day measurements with evaluations with clients. They can evaluate and we encourage them to ask specific questions. And you can, you can measure as deeply as you want. It just costs money, and that's what we tell them. You know, if you want to measure metrics, you want to measure whether whether people's revenues are going up, we can go in and do that. Most people don't want to spend the money to, to go and do that kind of examination. What they want to know is, are are, are people using this, this in some way or another? There's one organization I work with where they spend a billion dollars a year on leadership training, and that's it. A billion dollars a year on leadership training alone. So you've had a and good year. Not on me. <laughs> Not on me. A billion dollars a year, which tells you, and they're one of the world's you know, gold ships out there. And what they say is this. They honestly believe this, and this is their strategy, and I fully believe in it. And it's amazing that they got to this place, that if we expose enough people to the leadership concepts that we're exposing to, them, and, and a few rise, then all of the people around them rise. And it doesn't have to be all of the people who show up here. And it won't be from a realistic standpoint. There'll be a few people who will take some of these things and run with it, and then their people will run with it. But if we do nothing, no one, no one will be running. And so it's really about that kind of creating critical mass around it. And we come at it with the same philosophy, is that you lead enough horses to water, a few of them are going to drink, not all of, you know, a few of those those horses are going to be left standing because they have been drinking. It sounds like that there's less of a concern on measurement after the fact 
and more concerned on assessing where they are before you start? Well, there's a little bit of both. So that what they want to know is afterwards, they, they're going to ask their employees, you know, was this useful? Do you think it was useful in the moment? So that's right after the program is done. And of course, they're, they're excited about it. They're going to be in a state of frenzy, hopefully, you know, feeding frenzy. And they're going to, of course, they're going to think that it, it's worth, it, it's a worthy thing. But 30 days later, is it something, do they even remember who the speaker was? Which is it's less important to me than do they remember concepts? And then 60 days later, are you still using this? 90 days later, how are you using this? Give an example of how you're using this. And, you know, you're going to see attrition from the, the numbers of people from, you know, 100% of the people are going to get involved in that evaluation right after the program or, or close to it. Uh, 30 day, days later, you're going to see people who give feedback and they're using it. 60 days fewer, 90 days fewer. But I think when you're looking at, at good programming and good material, you're looking at hopefully finding ways to get back in this, uh, these audiences' faces that, again, don't include me. Or maybe they do. I'm, I'm doing a minute video that gets in front of them and says, hey, remember the concept that we talked about in critical thinking that was XYZ? Here's a way that you can use it at your work. And it comes to their email, and it's just a way to reinforce it. So you know, can you measure it perfectly? Maybe, maybe not. Are they using it in their lives in some way or another? That's kind of an empirical, what they call an empirical assessment. I'm asking you, uh, Theo, did you, are you still using this, right? So that's your own self-assessment. When we look at assessment assessments, when we're actually doing a, a valid measurement, like the EQI or Mergenetics, Berkman, Myers-Briggs, whatever anybody else is out there using, you can do a pre-assessment. And then in that scenario, we look at go do that assessment. Then you've got to work on it. And what we know from behavioral change theory and from neuroscientific theory around how behavior changes, you have to give it at least 90 days. And six months is more preferable of somebody actually working on it and being coached on it and being pushed on it almost on a daily basis. And then you remeasure. And you, you remeasure to find out if there have been changes. You can do a 360, you know, a pre-360 that says, well, this guy's a jerk from a lot of different angles. And then six months later, you do another 360, and there's like, well, he's not a, as much of a jerk. The issue is whether people are really willing to, to work that hard, you know, work that hard to change themselves. And, and that's where we step in. And, and when we sell to a client, we tell them, you know, 400 people are going to go through this. And four or five are going to emerge as superstars. That's going to be your, your batting rate. But that's four or five superstars you don't know about right now. And those people are worth millions to your organization. And so to believe that 400 people are going to change would be folly. It's just not realistic. And anybody who sells them that is not telling them the, the truth. But what we hope to help them find are those few that actually rise above it all and through remeasurement and measurement again, you're going to find those people who just stick out. When you're looking to improve people and develop people, uh, you're, you're looking for people who might be in the average pack, who come, who, who are a B player, who come up to the A, A level. That's development, and that's going to take development dollars. And most organizations want that, but do they support it? Some do, some don't. It sounds like you do a great job of managing the expectation of your client in terms of what you can produce. 
we really work on that. You know, it was it, it's interesting. The, the 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 thing I hate the most is going in with an expectation from a client that is, you know, this is this is going to cure everything. And I, I tell them what every speaker I think tells a client is that, you know, it it took ten, ten years to screw them up. It's not going to take an hour to unscrew them up. It's it, we're not we're not going to see anything any appreciable change. And our talk, I think, in a keynote gets people excited about the concept, about the idea, gets them um, imagining and thinking about the possibilities. Uh, the workshops, coaching, consulting, online learning, that gets, that's the hard work. So, you know, I can show you what a perfect body looks like in an hour, and then you gotta go into the gym and, and lift weights, and that's the hard work. A few will do it, and a lot won't. What's your, what would be a message for speakers? That you in my in my neuro class, one of the neuroscientists said the difference between an amateur and a and a, a professional, a pro, is a model, a model that people can actually follow. Taking taking a complex idea and making it so simple that it actually is usable and that it changes people's direction in their lives, the way that they interact with the world that they're living in. The vast majority of people just get overwhelmed by it, is what I see. And and we I think we work really hard as an association to to help people to not be blown over by the fire hose just to take a drop of water here a drop of water there go take a break um, we offer them all the water they want to drink but you know the the idea is to just take a few pieces here and there and and grow yourself i think that the one one of the biggest things in this business obviously you have to have talent right i don't know if it's number one but you got to have talent you you need to know how to speak you also need a body of knowledge and so you need a body of experts of expertise just going out and selling somebody else's expertise isn't isn't going to do it but the other piece is you have to have stick to it in this you got to stay in it you got to stay in it and and you just watch people eventually are, are not going to stick to it just like prof- uh, professional development personal development people get all excited in those first few days and then they realize how hard it is and then they just want to go back to how they were there are a lot of people who are satisfied with average a lot of people are satisfied with average takes a lot of work to, to be above average, but in reality, I don't think it takes that much. What I think is that, that speakers and, and trainers and consultants need to probably think in terms of how can they be reinforcing their message throughout the year that is, is a part of a bigger package as opposed to my speaking fee. Thank you, Scott. We now go north to Montreal, Quebec. LonelyPlanet.com says that cities like Montreal don't happen very often. By day, the city bubbles with European charm and North American pizzazz. After dark, its nightlife sizzles with creativity and abandon. The same might be said of our next guest. CAPS member, NSA friend, and Montreal native Tony Newman joins us now to talk about Touchpoint Innovation. Explain what a Touchpoint is. The traditional definition of a Touchpoint is any moment when any representation of your brand or company comes in contact with a potential customer. So any moment of touching your customer is a touch point. All right, so you said right there, potential customer, but you have touch points for your existing customers yes, too, don't yes. you? Yes, customer is a customer. My definition of a customer is anyone who is able to influence a future buying decision. So any moment when your brand or your company is represented and it reaches out to anybody who could be a customer, could influence a future buying decision of somebody else, that's a touch point. So for, from a speaker's perspective, what are the touch points in that relationship with a prospect, with a potential client? 
it's safe to say that in any business, but particularly a speaking business, there are anywhere from 75 to 100 touch points. So let me be a little more specific. A website is a touch point. But in our definition of a touch point, every page of that website is a touch point opportunity. And here's where I'd like to make a distinction right away. The traditional touch point body of knowledge talks about things like business cards and phone messages and all of those things are touch points. What I think business owners need to understand is that they are touch point opportunities. In other words, they're not a touch point until you've designed them and crafted them to actually touch your customer. So if somebody says that a website is a touch point, that's great. But in fact, the first touch point on your website is the landing page. And then where they go from there is another touch point opportunity. If we talk about social media as a touch point, well, actually, every social media that you are on is a touch point opportunity. And within each one of those, your profile picture, your description of your business, every single post is a touch point opportunity. So the idea is to get speakers very, very focused on the opportunities that they have to remind their customers why they should do business with them. And from your perspective, it seems that a touch point, there's an opportunity to either draw you closer in that relationship or create a divide in that relationship. Well, it's really interesting that you should mention that. We say there's a difference between touch point opportunities and touch point disconnects. And there's a very, very fine line. So you're absolutely right. A touch point is a double-edged sword. And if you're smart and if you're strategic and if you understand the process, you can design that touch point that it will make a difference and make a connection and remind your customers why you. And it would seem like the touch points that draw you together is very subtle, but the, the touch points that are disconnects are very profound. They're very profound. And how much impact a disconnect will have on your business depends on how important that touch point is to the customer. So if you think about the customer's journey with your business, you can have a disconnect that's not a very important one, happens in the middle of the customer journey, and you've still got time to make it up. If it's the last thing that happens, if we deliver a program and don't follow up or don't deliver to what we promised, then there's a disconnect. But the third level is you've got touch point opportunities, you've got touch point disconnects, and you've got what I say most of us have right now, which are touch points which are sitting in neutral. And that's really sad. It's better than a disconnect. But they're sitting in neutral. And what I mean by that is you got a great business card, you've got a great website, but it's not great and different. It's not doing the job that it could be doing to create connections with the customer. So the work that we do with people is really around how do you take those touch points and make them so strategic that every one of those touch points reminds customers why they should be doing business with you. So from a speaker's perspective, take me through, you said there's 75 to 100 touch points. What are the touch points in in a speaker's business? Well, if I were to talk, and and we do often talk about the top 10 to 15 touch points for speakers, some of them are obvious. So web page, again, remembering that every page of website, every page of your website is a touch point. I go down to your title, the name of your business, your tagline is a touch point. All of your social media is a touch point. Every description that is on a bureau site of you is a touch point. Every description that you furnish to a client of a program is a touch point. Every client event that you do, all the marketing that you do, if you have a business card, a brochure, an ebook, your book, all of those are speakers' touch points. One of the ones that I find speakers don't spend enough time on, for example, is an introduction. 
I often talk about speakers' introductions being all about them, when in fact it's the first opportunity that you have to talk to an audience about them. And so each one of those things is a touch point, and each one should be designed to remind your customers why they should do business with you. So when you say introduction, is it the introduction of the speaker to the audience? Or yes. the inter- okay, so it's not the speaker's introduction of their material. No, I'm talking about... Before the, the speaker even comes out, when somebody's absolutely. introducing them, you see that as a touch point. It's an absolutely important touch point. It is the, the introduction of the audience to you and your content. A speaker's photo. A speaker's bio. I mean, my greatest challenge, and I still don't think we've done a, a really good job of it yet, is the traditional speaker photo. For heaven's sakes, line up 50 of them. They all look exactly the same. And there are some people who've done really great jobs with it. Laura Stack is a great example. Laura Stack is all about productivity. She's got a clock in her photo. It's perfect. She's used her photo strategically as a touch point to promote what her brand is. So how is a touch point different than a brand? The touch points are the opportunities that you have to tell your brand story. So we have a tagline. All of us have a tagline. We have a brand. But the brand is not made up of one sentence. The brand is made up of a story. Usually what I tell people to do is take a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle, put L on the left side for left brain and R on the right side for right brain, and write down the words that you would want customers to use to describe you. Write down on the left side things like uh, uh, results focused or, or smart or knowledgeable, all those things. Write down dynamic, fun, and then you, on the right side, and then you design your brand story. That's what the greatest brands in the world have done. FedEx, Volkswagen, Walmart, they've all designed these huge brands. And in our world, Jeffrey Gittimer, Mark Sanborn, all of these are people who are so intimately connected to their brand that every time you see one of their touch points, they are telling a part of their story and it's consistent over time. You said there's 10 to 15 major touch points a speaker can focus on or any business can focus on. Even there's 75 to 100, there's, you can, 10 to 15 significant ones. You've mentioned about the web page, but what are some of the other touch points? I think a really interesting one is the email signature. I think we've all gotten rather complacent with email signature. It's a great opportunity to provide unexpected value. The idea about designing a touch point that strategically reminds your customers why you is about doing something that's unexpected. So I think email signatures are a wonderful opportunity to do something unexpected. Phone messages. We've all gotten very complacent. I'm out of the office. I'll be back whenever. What can you do with a phone message that would make it not just better but different and strategic? Web pages, social media, your photos, your bios, all of the descriptions of your sessions. And then if you want to kind of step outside of your business, how do you interact with your clients? What does your contract look like? Our contract is not just a better contract, but it's different and it supports the brand. And your contract is a touch point. Contract is an absolute touch point. Invoices are a touch point. If you've got pre-event interviews with with people who are going to be in your audience or a pre-event briefing with your client, that's a touch point. If you are presenting in our business, if you're making any kind of proposal, what an awesome opportunity to do something that people have never seen, but that's not different for the sake of being different, but that's strategic. So those are the ones that I think every business can look at. What we do with people is we say, sit down, look at your business model, and decide what are the top 10 to 15 high-influence touch points for you. For example, we change our phone message every six months. We get very, very little incoming phone. But somebody else who has an, a lot of incoming phone may decide to work that. Online stores are another great one. It's a huge touch point. 
So it would seem that for a speaker to look at every moment of interaction they have with their clients, from the from the time that they're a prospect as they move through and become a, a client, and also one of the, the areas where speakers probably uh, don't do as good a job as they could is that once they've booked the engagement, then, then we think our work is done. No. Talk about your touch points after you've booked the business. Absolutely. So for example, one of the things that we do is we send a confirmation email when I leave the house to go to the airport and step on the plane. It has a photo of me, my back is turned, it's got, I've got my red ladder on it, and basically what it says is I've been a meeting planner in a past life, I just want to let you know I'm on the way, it's all good, it confirms my arrival time. I have had so many clients mention that email. First of all, I do know that they're stressed about whether or not the speakers are going to show up. So we created this little touch point. And you know what? Afterwards, the clients go, that was really great of you. You took some stress off my shoulders. So you're absolutely right, Theo. Oftentimes, we work so much on the touch points that are attracting our customers. What we also need to focus on are the touch points that are keeping them and the touch points that will engage them. So any communication before the event, what do you do at the event? Handouts, if you use them, are a touch point. Any follow-up with participants, any follow-up with your clients after. And then how do you promote, if you've got a newsletter, if you've got a blog, those are all touch points. We have a package that we send out, a gift we send out to our clients after an engagement that is very personal to our brand. And when they get it, they go, that's so you. Those are important touch points. And you can't come up with enough of them. Thank you, Tony. Joining us now is Jerry Bernard, Tony Newman's husband and business partner. My intention with this interview is to focus on what it's like to work with your spouse. But as you will hear, our conversation includes non-marital insights that are beneficial to all speakers, whether you have a spouse or business partner or not. What are the challenges of working with your spouse? The big thing is that there's a working style that each of us have, and there's a personal style that each of us have. And it's to make sure that you know the difference between the two and which style happens to be speaking at which time. And getting to know those styles, right, and have an appreciation for them. So that's one thing I think that we we do really, really well, is to recognize that uh, Tony has her style, I have my style, and the communication in between those styles sometimes is a give and take and and you have to be cognizant of what where the other person is in their mental state or how they're doing for the day before one of us approaches the other that would be the biggest challenge but we're aware of it in the business tony's very much the talent you're very much the management or the support staff are the roles any different just as a married couple don't think so particularly you know we were talking about that there's many spousal relationships right. within the business I, I probably think that we may be in a minority being that uh, tony is the face the brains the beauty of the business and the husband is the back end of the business and takes care of the details and all that kind of stuff so what we just do is balance the day so if i know tony's got a full plate of stuff to do then i'll go get the groceries or i'll cook dinner and I'll, I'll get the kids started on their homework and all that kind of stuff so Tony could focus on doing what she does brilliantly, which is the creative side. So if I could take the stress away from the day-to-day and allow her mind to be creative, then we benefit from the business, we benefit from a personal perspective, all that kind of stuff. So, And then her time where Tony just, she wants to just go do the groceries and she has her meals that she cooks that the, the family loves and all that kind of stuff. So we just, we share it, we share it. So it sounds like you're the operations manager. You make sure things run smoothly and creates an environment to support your speaker. Yeah, so what I try to do is, to the best of my abilities, is take away all of the 
the administration, the details, the, the more, like you say, the operational role of make sure that the client has what they need, uh, make sure that we get what we need from the client, take care of all that relationship. And that, so Tony doesn't need to worry about that. She could worry about the content, what she's going to present for that day, building a relationship with the client from a, from a personal perspective. So do you have an operations background? Uh, I have a project management background, and mostly in software development. So what lessons from project management could be applied to running a speaker's office? Knowing what details need to be done and having a plan in place that, that takes care of it. So what we try to do for the most part is build a template. Here's what an engagement looks like from the first initial contact of a client all the way through to post contact with the client. So we've built that template, and then we just modify the template depending on the particular client or what the needs of the client are. So we have checklists that are in place, right? Just from a project management role, you have a checklist and a plan that you would follow through the course of the project. So we have the same sort of thing that we go through and say, does the client need, do we need to ship stuff to the client? No, so that's not applicable in this particular case. Do, right, they need marketing material, they need photo, they need that blah, blah, blah. Just build it out, know when they need it, put a timeline to it, and it's pretty much what the project is. So you've really thought about this analytically and said, okay, to every step of the interaction with our client, here's the process. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the timing of when that, that happens is critical to, from the project management perspective. And then from the creative, I, uh, in project management, you really need to be creative because you're dealing with clients all the time and projects rarely ever go smooth. Um, so, so the creativity in terms of how do you get the project accomplished and when things are going all amok is, is very helpful. So we do, we apply the same thing, right? We have the template, you have the schedule, right? And my title is the director of WOW. So my role is to WOW the client. So all of my interactions with the client are touch points. No different than what we, we try to, to teach. My phone call to them, the message that I leave, the information that I give them are all touch points to our business. How do we follow up our invoice, et cetera, et cetera really part of the, the role. Of, I'm the, one of the touch points for our business. And you've defined those roles in advance. Right. You know going in what's going to take place, what needs to occur, and you have a response or a system in place to address those. Exactly. Exactly. You need to do that. And then we sit down and we tweak that as as go along because it's never static. Every client is different for the most part. The template works very effectively. But like I said, there's nuances within the template that you have to accommodate based on the client that you're dealing with. Bureaus, agents, managers, oh my! Join us now as Krista Haberstock of the C Agency explains the difference. All right, so Krista has a really interesting background. Krista started in, has a bureau background. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. I totally stumbled into the world, as I think a lot of people do, into the speaking industry. And I started at a large bureau in Dallas as a showcase planner. And so I planned showcases for a while, and then I got into sales and started selling speakers and did that for about 10 years. Actually, exactly 10 years. All right. So you kind of stumbled into the business. Probably didn't even know the business existed. Totally didn't. The first, ha- like the first half of my first day at work was me looking through a file cabinet trying to figure out what a speaker's bureau was. So about lunchtime, I said, okay, I think I got it figured out. What you do is you talk to conference planners and event planners and find speakers for them. <laughs> Bingo. Okay, ready for work, you know, fully trained. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and then from the bureau side of the business, so you've kind of evolved, much like the industry is involving, um, evolving, the, uh, from a bureau you went to what? 
From the bureau, I went to the flip side of the industry. So instead of uh, what I call brokering the product, I went to representing the product okay. on the speaker management side of it. And I've been doing that in various capacities for the last, since 2007. So what what is the speaker management side of the business? What does that mean? The The foundation of my agency is that it is true representation. So in a lot of ways it has existed, but not necessarily for speakers. You know, I think the bureaus uh, who take on exclusive speakers have been doing speaker management for a long time because, you know, they promote and they represent the speaker, you know, as their representative. They take their calls and they they help promote them and do all the things that an agent would do. So the exclusive bureaus are true agents. And then I think the speaker managers are, in essence, a lot of that kind of stuff too. So, yeah, there, there are some nuances between the entertainment and different differences between entertainment and speakers. But that's So different. entertainers, though, have traditionally had representation. Exactly. So your own speaker management, how is that different than speaker agent? Oh, boy. I'm going to get myself in trouble. Okay, here we go. Um, you know, You're no stranger to trouble. No. Well, it just finds me. <laughs> uh, so, okay, as a bureau agent, which I was for 10 years, you know, I called myself an agent, and I think, you know, b- bureaus do that, and that's totally cool. I think it's a little bit, just a little bit of semantics. But as, a, as an agent agent, you know, like a speaker's agent, you are their representative. You are acting on their behalf. And I think with the bureaus, what they're doing is they're getting to know the speakers to a point, but they're not acting on the speaker's behalf. They are really brokering that talent for an event. So it's, you know, neither good or bad. It's just a little bit of semantics that I think actually causes some confusion a little bit. Well, is it fair to say that the bureau side isn't the client, the person hiring the speaker, isn't that the bureau's client? It's almost like dual agency, let's say, in a real estate transaction. Who? Right. So the bureau, who does the bureau represent? Do they represent the speaker or do they represent the client? That, I think the real estate analogy is the best one. I just think that there's two clients in every situation. You know, you're acting on behalf of the speaker, but you're also acting on behalf of the client, which makes me feel like it's more of a broker relationship. Okay. And so speaker-manager, Yeah. you're clearly on the side of the speaker. Of the speaker, okay. So does that mean you're you're making sure they're in front of the right audience, yep. right opportunities? Yep. yep, yep, yep. All of the above. The you know the things that the speakers either don't have time for or it's not their skill set. The things that they kind of shouldn't be doing, in my opinion, like you know the. You know, How convenient as a manager to say, <laughs> is every speaker manager ready, manager eligible? Is this a, is having a manager a fit for every speaker? Huh. That's a good question. You know, I think at a certain point in the career, it's necessary slash inevitable that you're going to need somebody to either run the, your back office or, you know, in a best case scenario, get someone a back office and a manager slash agent, whatever, because you got to you got to be the talent, you know, you got to be on stage, you got to sparkle. Right. So what, how, how, so what's the distinction between staff and manager then? If you can do is, is, cause I, the manager model, it seems to be it's outside of their – you have your own – you know, a manager has their own office, may manage multiple speakers, mm-hmm. whereas a staff person is going to be kind of working exclusively for that speaker. Sure. The staff person, see, you know, and I need to be sensitive here too. I wouldn't think necessarily that there are a lot of – a lot, I'm going to say not a lot, of qualified, trained sales killers out there that are also running the back office because the skill set is kind of different. So for, okay, so with with my agency, for example, 
we have one person dedicated to the event management, setting up the AV time, you know, making sure that we have the flights, making sure we have the hotel confirmation number, all the stuff that I hate. Right. <laughs> and then I am on the other side negotiating all the deals, making sure that the contracts are for the highest dollar possible, taking the right ones to the speaker, making sure it's the right event. You know, if it's a big event, let's get some book sales in there. So maximizing every deal. So those really are two different. The function is two different, you know, skill sets. And it's unusual for one person to have both skill sets is what you're saying. Yeah. And if you dump all that responsibility on the speaker, how can you, it's just, I mean, you got to do, it's hard to do it all. I don't know. And that's, I think what separates the men from the boys, as they say, in this industry. If you can really hammer through the early years and and you're doing it all and you're successfully getting it all done. And, you know, a lot of a lot of speakers, they get their wives or their spouse or their husband, whatever, to to run their office. What should a speaker look for when selecting a manager? Well, first thing that pops to my mind is uh, compatibility personality-wise. Because if you don't, if you don't like the person, like if they, <laughs> you know, you can't sell a product you don't believe in. So from the manager's perspective, it makes it very, very difficult. Compatibility with the other members of the roster too. I say with the C agency roster that it's a, it's a delicate ecosystem, and you know, speakers can either, you know, they can either synergize and build each other up, or it'll cannibalize. And so you have to be really careful to make sure that if you're entering a roster, you know, of, of speakers, that you're kind of either a similar genre, but you have your own unique thing. And uh, yeah, so those are kind of the two most important things that that you look for. And, you know, it's, you got to make sure to, you know, the biggest question I get asked is, so what are your outbound marketing things? You know, what are you going to do to sell me more and get me more gigs? That is just the classic fairy tale story that doesn't happen, you know, Anywhere, you know, you if you get a manager or an agent that says, oh, I'm going to triple your bookings next year, just careful with that because <laughs> those are promises that are very difficult to keep. Uh, I'm sure it happens, but for the most part, you it's a manager's job. It's my job anyway. This is my perspective to maximize every opportunity, whether that be a book tour or a book launch or all the thousand points of light that go into to everything. You know, man, you know, retweeting, <laughs> being a... You know, if it's a big event, helping maybe with the book sales at the event, whatever it is, maximizing the opportunity. So it's more of a collaborative effort, it sounds like. It's a partnership. Partnership. Mm-hmm. So speaker management is not for everybody, nor is working with the Bureau for everybody. Some speakers have been able to build an internal organization that supports them. I thought something you said a moment ago, though, is about this fairy tale concept that uh, a manager is going to come in and triple your bookings or that a bureau is necessarily going to come in. You know, the bureau and the manager are, are doing the same thing the speaker's trying to do, right? Build relationships, find opportunities. What are some of the mistakes you see speakers making? Well, along those lines is thinking that there's one answer, one silver bullet. You know, if I can only, you know, I saw it when I was on the bureau side, speakers would say, um, you know, <laughs> or I, I just saw that it was a sentiment. If I could just get in with this one bureau. Um, you know, a lot of speakers will think that there's one silver bullet to to making it in the industry. There are so many things that just put gas in the tank of a speaker. You have to do it all. You know, you just have to do it all and do what you do best and do a lot of what you do best, but outsource your weaknesses too. Do what you do best, delegate the rest. Oh my God, you should be a speaker. Will you be my manager? <laughs> it's that time again, time to get pegged where we explore one or more of NSA's professional emphasis groups, or PEGs. The PEGs are possibly one of the greatest benefits of your NSA membership, next to VOE, of course. Learn more 
about all 12 NSA pegs by visiting the NSA website, www.nsaspeaker.org. And now a word from one or more of our peg chairs. This is Bob Wendover. I'm from Colorado, and uh, this year I'll be serving as chair of the Writers Publishers Peg. With so many established writers and authors in NSA, we're always looking for ways to provide additional value to those who have some great experience under their belts. Along the way, we'll be encouraging those who are new to writing and publishing to tune in for the insights and what we plan to share through newsletters and pegcasts. NSA has always provided lots of information about how-to. Well, this year we're going to stir it up a little bit and focus more on what we might call have-done. This means I'll be interviewing people who have applied what they've learned and thrived in the process. We'll talk strategy, tactics, mistakes, and successes. Being a longtime member of NSA, I've learned a tremendous amount about speaking and publishing and writing and the the business in general from listening to the interviews and newsletters produced by previous peg chairs and committees. But over the years, publishing has changed dramatically. What worked even five years ago is being superseded by new technologies, delivery systems, and customer demands. Writing has become more succinct and targeted and has to compete with so much more content these days. I published my first book in 1988 and now look back with a laugh about how cumbersome and time-consuming that process was compared to what I will do with my upcoming release. But the secrets I learned come from my colleagues here at NSA. The sharing is invaluable, um, along with the encouragement and sometimes the, uh, the kick in the pants. We'll be releasing newsletters and pegcasts quarterly, and we encourage all those who are peg members to listen and read and provide feedback. We're always looking for ideas, resources, links, and referrals. Hi, this is Christy Ward. I'm going to be the peg chair for the Trainers and Facilitators peg this year. Trainers and facilitators, what do we do? Well, we lead workshops, seminars, we facilitate retreats, all those kinds of things. We don't just share information. We provide the tools, techniques, and approaches and materials to make sure that the information that we provide is usable. We're the learning part of the profession. We're the ones who facilitate the dialogue. So if enhanced performance is something you offer your clients, The trainer's facilitator's peg may need to be a part of your professional development. On our programs this year, I want to explore the trends, the global shifts that we're seeing going on in this segment of our business. I also want to talk to keynoters who offer training and trainers who offer keynotes and decide where to go for the resources to help you grow this part of your speaking business. Speaking is communication of ideas. We all need to be doing that. We all need to be entertaining, we all need to be humorous, and we're all communicators. But how we do it may be different depending on your business model. The NSA member survey this last year revealed that over half of our membership is engaged in offering training to our clients. If that's true, then I need to know what you need, those of you that are trainers and facilitators. Do you need techniques? Do you need to know how to create case studies? Do you need business models for how to incorporate your keynotes, your training, your facilitation, how to make it all work? Do you need to know what the trends are? Do you need specific facilitation skills? So 
reach out to us as well and let us know how we can better serve you as because this is your peg. We're going to explore the use of story as well. Story and training may be different from story in keynotes. How to facilitate a dialogue between people in the room. Sometimes you can do that in a keynote. Sometimes you can't. And how to create a safe enough space in your audiences for training to take place. So join us for the Trainers and Facilitators Peg. My name is Kurt Shaver, and I'm excited about being the chair for the Sales Peg this year. Obviously, selling is important to any member of NSA because we all sell ourselves to get hired. The target audience of the Sales Peg is members that speak to or train salespeople how to sell. The person that hires us is typically a vice president of sales, which kind of makes it interesting because we're selling ourselves and our sales expertise to somebody who's already an expert in sales techniques. Pegcast and newsletter content will target sales trends like the shift from fewer field salespeople to more inside salespeople and even more online selling and how that impacts the sales training business. We'll look at the latest sales methodologies, techniques, and tools, and we'll interview thought leaders both in the in NSA and outside of NSA. If you have some ideas or topics on speakers, please send them to me, Kurt Shaver, at Kurt, K-U-R-T, at thesalesfoundry.com. Look forward to your input. Last year's VOE host slash producer slash impresario was Brian Walter, and he did an incredible job. His creativity, style, and substance earned him a Presidential Service Award and the appreciation and respect of his peers. He set an impossible standard for VOE and set the bar so high that I've had no choice but to simply run under it. If there weren't term limits on being VOE chair, I'd have begged him to do another year. But alas, he did his time and did it well, but his service to NSA is far from over. He's now serving NSA as the chair of the Laugh Lab. We've brought him back to tell you all about it. Brian? This is Brian Walter, and I have a very important announcement. This January, for the first time in nearly eight years, NSA has brought back the Humor Lab. Except now we're calling it the Laugh Lab. And you should seriously consider not coming. That's right. If you're a serious content speaker who doesn't believe that audience laughter reveals truth, increases engagement, and helps put money in your pocket, then stay far, far away from Las Vegas this January 3rd through 5th. Because this is not a sell skeptics on the value of humor lab. Zero time will be spent on that. But if you're a serious content speaker who already knows what being funnier could mean for your audience impact, then this lab's for you. That's right. Scads of time will be spent showing you exactly how to be funnier, even if you're not that funny now. You will experience and experiment with multiple funny focuses. These are specific laughter-generating skill sets like on-screen humor, funny phrasing, story humor, funny physicality, and how to be funny with audience interaction. It would be a good idea for you to bring a white lab coat, because the Laugh Lab is a truly experimental environment. You'll conduct tests of your own speech material using the techniques you discover. You'll have lab partners, NSA humorists, who will help guide your small group experiments. A likely highlight will be the Friday night strip search. That's when you search out and attend a comedy act on the strip. 
a mere two blocks from the Las Vegas Marriott, where we'll be holding the Laugh Lab. You'll document and then discuss how to directly apply humor techniques you experienced. Now, as the chair of the Laugh Lab, it's my responsibility to specifically quantify the need for you to attend. After conducting a highly unscientific poll, I can assure you that 86.2% of your 2013 audiences really want you to attend this lab. Now, if this all sounds like good news, I've got bad news. You can't all come. This is a highly focused lab, which means there are only 120 slots, half of which are already filled. So register right away, or at least sooner than any other NSA members listening to VOE right now. January 3rd through 5th, in Las Vegas, it's the Laugh Lab. No red clown noses or lame jokes, just showing you exactly how to be funnier even if you're not that funny now. <laughs> okay, we're on the home stretch here. The October 2012 VOE edition is almost complete. But it's not. Nor would it be without first hearing from Ron Culberson in a segment he likes to call the President's Message. Which is fitting because he is our president. Ron? Thanks, Theo. In his book, The Celebration of Discipline, author Richard Foster says that true service is the kind of service you do for others but don't talk about. I've been thinking about that a lot as I prepared this VOE because I wanted to discuss my philosophy of service. But if I tell you about it, it's not really true service anymore, but self-serving service, which not only takes the fun out of the service, it makes it less, well, serviceful. Maybe there's another way for me to talk about it, without it looking like I'm patting myself on the back for serving others. What if I told you about this speaker friend of mine who has a really cool service philosophy? Let's try that. So I know this guy who is a speaker, author, and humorist. He's really funny. You'd love him. And he just took over the presidency of a national association. It's not an association you'd be familiar with, so I won't tell you the name. In his inauguration address, he talked about how the value of the association is in the way the members serve each other. Isn't that cool? A few years ago, this friend was involved in a rotary club, his church, and his national association. With a pretty hefty volunteer role in each organization, he started to burn out. He also felt that his volunteering was interfering with his real work. Then he had this brilliant insight. What if volunteering became a part of his business rather than than in addition to his business. In other words, what if his business model included volunteering? This shift in thinking totally changed his approach to volunteering. Now, in any given week, it doesn't matter how much time his volunteer activities take because it's just part of his business plan to spend time in the service of others. It's not an either-or, but just what he does. I so admire him for this level of thinking, don't you? So how does this relate to NSA? Well, because NSA is an organization filled with volunteer service. We as members serve the organization as committee chairs, board members, writers, and in many other ways. Do you realize that the convention chair works for more than two years on planning that one event? And did you know that the members of the chapter leadership committee not only plan Camp NSA, which is a training program for chapter leaders, they also serve as mentors and support resources for every chapter president around the country. And there are even volunteers who review every issue of Speaker Magazine to make sure it's relevant and grammatically correct. Now that's volunteering at its goodest. And as members, we also serve each other every time we help a member with his or her business. 
All across the country, there are lunch meetings, conversations in coffee shops, and hallway discussions at chapter meetings where our members are freely sharing valuable information with each other, all for the purpose of helping each other succeed. NSA's founder, Cavett Robert, believed that if we help each other, we all become better. I think that might be true for any volunteer work. When we serve others, we become better. And that's kind of the heart of NSA. And that's cool. That's what I know, or at least what my friend knows. I hope in some way it's helpful to you. Well, that's it. Another edition of VOE is in the can, as they say. Thank you to all of our guests for the insights and ideas. Thanks to Brian Walter for his return appearance. A special thank you to singer-songwriter Kelly McGrath, who has generously contributed her music to VOE. You can learn more about her and her music by visiting www.kellymcgrathmusic.com. Thanks to you, the listener, for, well, listening. And thanks to all of the volunteers who make NSA possible. Be sure to visit the NSA website and learn more about the PEGS and to register for the Laugh Lab. You can also check out information about the winter meeting being held in San Francisco in February, which we'll discuss in more detail next month. Until next time, get out there and spread love, people. It won't be long before our ship comes in. I said, it won't be long before our ship comes in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.